Amen. What an amazing group of words. Isn't it? It's so liberating and freeing to, to sing that, to praise the Lord in that way. Speaking of how great He is, His name is above all other names. And today, I don't know where you're at and what you're going through, but I know that we serve a God who knows you intimately and cares more than we could ever imagine. And He's right there to meet your needs wherever you're at. I love Psalm chapter 20, verse 7. It says, Some trust in chariots, others in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And, and aren't there so many things pulling for us to trust in today? But we need to remain steadfast in our faith and trust in the true and living God. Amen? Praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. This morning, I feel like it's been long awaited as we've continued on in the book of Acts and we've been dealing with the angry Jewish mob who's come against Paul because they conjured up a lie, a rumor that was stating that he was against Jews that were converted, keeping their Jewish customs. And so we've been reading and, and hearing about that for the last several weeks. Today we're actually going to take a look at Paul, not his rebuttal, but Paul actually getting the opportunity to share with this angry mob what he is really doing and what he has been doing. So with that, we're starting Acts chapter 22 this morning, and I will read a portion of the scripture. Uh, there's, there's a quite a few verses. It's actually his testimony, his conversion account, and it starts in Acts chapter 22, starting in verse 1. So when you get there, if you would stand, and I'll go ahead and read the Word of God, and we'll pray, and we'll get into our text this morning. Acts chapter 22, and I will start in verse 1. And it reads, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarshish in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, persecuted this way to the death, binding and deliver, delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest in whom and the whole council of the elders can bear me witness. For them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus, to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there 
you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you again for just the opportunity to commune with you, to hear from you as a congregation, as part of your body of Christ. May you now speak to us through your word. Help us to understand where Jesus is in this. How does this apply to our life in the 21st century today in 2021? May you encourage us, convict us, reprove us, give us all that we need so that we may be able to stand firm against the testings and the trials that come our way. Father, we thank you and love you. It's in Jesus Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This is exciting. There is so much going on in this text this morning. Again, like I said, we're going to get a bird's eye view of Paul's perspective of what he was doing. So he's been accused of keeping converted Jews from practicing their Jewish customs. And because of that accusation that was brought against him, he's actually been not only threatened, but violent attacks have been made upon his life. And if it wasn't for the Roman soldier, the guard that attended to him to take him away because the Romans wanted to keep order. They didn't want their structures getting destroyed. They didn't want chaos amongst the people. They took Paul away. If not, Paul would have died then. But again, we are going to hear about his testimony and his conversion story. This is very exciting and it is a good benchmark for us to gauge our own conversion with. There are always similar things that you're going to find in every converted person, every saved person. There are three main areas that are involved with everyone's salvational experience. The minor details will vary such as your age, uh, your culture or race, your location you were at when this happened, the time of day it was when you uh, experienced this life-changing meeting with the Lord, but there always will be certain aspects of a person's conversion that will never change. And these are going to be our three main points that we need to touch on this morning, and we can find this in our text as Paul shares his own conversion account. And so the first main point is this. You cannot be converted to Jesus Christ without conviction. This is absolutely the number one main factor that contributes to a person's conviction. Or conversion, I should say. Excuse me. Conviction is key. But first we need to be clear and understand what conviction is not. Because I think that word gets thrown around a lot and sometimes we may not even really understand what is the biblical definition of conviction. How do I know if I'm even being conviction, uh, convicted? Excuse me. It's not simply a guilty conscience or even shame over sin. Such feelings are naturally experienced almost by every person. Again, we were created in the moral image of God, so there are certain things that are going to trigger when things happen. So this is something that's common within all people. But this is not true conviction of sin. 
This is what you would call your conscience. Second, conviction of sin is not a sense of fear of the divine or, oh, I'm going to go to hell because I am wrong. I am, I am going to be punished. These feelings, too, are commonly experienced in the hearts and the minds of people or sinners. Uh, you look at it many times, not all the time, but many times when someone gets caught for a heinous crime, they feel bad. They feel guilty. They feel shame because they got caught. Some people don't. And that's when your conscience is seared. You have no feeling towards the wrong that you have done. But again, true conviction of sin is something entirely different. Third, conviction of sin is not merely knowledge of right or wrong. Many people today know the Bible and some, I say, well, may even dare say, they actually read the Bible. And they are fully aware that the wages of sin is death. They may know that no immoral or greedy person is going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. They may even agree that the wicked shall be turned to hell and they won't be able to experience the Lord God forever. Yet for all their head knowledge, they continue to live a lifestyle of sin. They understand the consequences, but they're far from being convicted of their sins. The truth is, if we experience nothing more than a sting of our conscience, anxiety at the thought of judgment, or an academic or educational awareness of hell, then we have never truly known the conviction of sin. So that's what sin is, uh, conviction is not. So what is real conviction, you would ask? The kind of conviction that the Bible speaks of. Well, convict means to convince someone of the truth, to reprove, to accuse, to refute, or to cross-examine a witness. The Holy Spirit acts as a prosecuting attorney, so to speak, who exposes evil, who reproves evildoers, and convicts people of their need for a Savior. Basically this, to be convicted is to feel the loathsomeness of sin, just the, the, the deep, saddened state of your sin before a holy God. This is what happens when we see God in all His beauty as He reveals Himself to us, His purity, His holiness, and we recognize that sin cannot dwell with Him because He is holy and righteous. Think about when Isaiah stood in the presence of God. He was immediately overwhelmed with his sinfulness. He said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. To be convicted is to experience an utter dreadfulness of sin before a holy God. Think about when Joseph was being, uh, I will say, attacked by Potiphar's wife. What did he say? He said, how could I do this great evil and sin against the Lord? He was convicted, even though he didn't do anything wrong. Just the presence of the nature of evil trying to entice him to do something, he was convicted in that way. This is key. We are convicted when we become mindful 
of how much our sin dishonors God. That's the key. It's not about the fact that we're going to be punished. It's not about the fact that, oh, I feel bad. It's, a fact, it's the fact that God is holy and righteous and how our wrong actions dishonor Him. It breaks His heart. It hurts Him when we sin, when we continue to live a lifestyle of sinful behavior and attitude. When David was convicted by the Holy Spirit, he cried out, Against you and you only I have sinned and have done what is evil in your sight. You see, this is key as well. David understood that primarily his offense was toward God. Many times when a married couple, when someone falls out and they commit adultery, they tend to just look at the fact that they have done wrong against this human being. But remember, when a man and woman are brought together and become one flesh, and they say their vows before God, that's a union with God, first and foremost. So when that adulterer commits that act, they are actually sinning against the Lord first, and then they are sinning against their spouse. Spouse, excuse me, David understood that. We are convicted when we become intensely aware of the wrath it exposes to our souls. Remember the Philippian jailer, right? He fell to his knees. He was going to kill himself. He cried out to the apostles, what must I do to be saved? He recognized that in his depraved state, his sin was worthy of death. He was certain of that, that without a savior, he would die. That's our first main point. Without conviction, we can't even begin the process, the supernatural process of salvation, how that occurs. The second is this. Repentance always follows up after conviction. True repentance. When the Holy Spirit convicts people of sin, He represents the righteous judgment of God. There is no appeal, though. In this court, in God's court, there is no appeal. It's final. This is what it is, and this is what we have to own up to. The Holy Spirit not only convicts people of sin, but He also brings them to repentance. There are many verses that we could cover that we don't have time, but this is clear in the Bible that it is the work of God that does this. Repentance involves recognizing that you and I have thought wrongfully in the past and that now we are determined to think rightly in the future about our ways and our conduct before a holy God. The repented person has second thoughts about the mindset that he formerly or she formerly embraced, the lifestyle that we used to live, the way we used to think about things. Maybe it was easy to go to the casino and drink, and gamble, and be around all kind of cursing and lewd acts. Maybe it was okay to bet on football games and things of that nature, and go to Las Vegas, and go to the, you know, the adult, uh, you know, dance shows, and all that kind of stuff. It was okay to go to the club and do all these different things. But now, the Holy Spirit has given us a new perspective and a new understanding of how to live our lives before a true and holy God and to be an effective witness before people who are unsaved. And this is where repentance comes into play. 
True repentance, repentance excuse me, is prompted by godly sorrow and leads to salvation. This again is a work of the Lord. Repentance and faith can be understood as two sides of the same coin. Simply because it is impossible for you and I to place our faith in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior without first changing our mind about our sin and about who Jesus is and what he has done. I'm not saying you have to get cleaned up before you come to the Lord, but we can't claim that Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Lord and we're still thinking that our old way of life is okay and that we're still fine with living that sort of way. It does not work like that. Whether it is willful rejection or ignorance, it's still a change of mind that needs to occur. Biblical repentance in relation to salvation, again, is changing our mind and rejecting the former and accepting Christ and His way of thinking, His holy life, the mandates that He has set before us. And really all wrapped up in that mandate is a relationship. It's not about rule keeping. That's an outward expression of a lifestyle and a heart that's changed, but it's a relationship. And when we have that relationship intact with the Lord, all the things of right living and living holy and justly before God are going to be a, a natural, or I should say a supernatural byproduct of your life and your heart being renewed in Christ. That means your character and how you go about living your life. Repentance is something that God gives it is only possible because of His grace. We, we need to be those that pray, Lord, grant me repentance. Grant me the ability to change my mind. You see, sometimes when we sin, repent, sin, repent, sin, repent over the same thing over and over again, dare I say, we may be asking amiss. Meaning, we may be trying to conjure up repentance in and of ourselves. I know we've all been there. There's been something that we haven't been able to get over. But when the Lord reveals to us and shows us, it's not us. You can't, you can't conjure up the ability to repent. It has to be granted and given. Again, that's that yoke, taking upon the yoke of Christ. A lot of times we bear burdens that we can't carry. We can't handle it. And we wonder why we struggle through certain situations in life. Maybe it is simply because we are not giving it over to the Lord. If you are fearful today, you need to be like that young child and give your fear to Jesus. Admit your fear of whatever situation you're going through. The frustration, maybe even confusion. Give those things to Christ and watch Him work. But when we try to do it in our own strength, even when we're not even aware that we're doing it in our own strength, it becomes a lot more difficult and frustrating than it really, truly needs to be. All of salvation, including repentance and faith, is a result of God drawing us, opening our eyes and changing our hearts. God's long-suffering leads us to repentance, as does His kindness. So that's the second main point. Repentance will always follow up true conviction. You can use those benchmarks in your own life. Am I truly convicted? Well, repentance will follow up right after. The third main point is this. 
Salvation and regeneration is a supernatural byproduct of true conviction and repentance. You see, all these things go together. Don't ask me how the Holy Spirit does it or how the Lord does it because I can't explain that. That's beyond my scope. That's beyond my mental capacity. Uh, salvation is an instantaneous act. When you are saved, that, that there's, there's, there's something that has happened in all of us. You all remember and recall when your life changed. You remember where you were at, what you were doing, maybe even where, what you were wearing, who you were with, when somehow it changed. Your life changed. It clicked. That's that supernatural act. But in that supernatural act, these all occur Conviction, repentance, and salvation. It's all in one. This means, this is the means, excuse me, in the way man must be saved. Regeneration is a radical change. Just as our physical birth resulted in a new baby coming into this earthly world or this realm our spiritual birth results in a new person entering into a heavenly realm after regeneration or salvation we begin to see and hear and seek after divine things we begin to live a life of faith and holiness second corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 tells us now christ is formed in the hearts now we are partakers of the divine nature, having been made new creatures. You're a new creation in Christ. Today, if Jesus is your Savior, you are a new creation. Your body may look like it's wasting away and you may see more gray hairs and you may not be as firm and as strong as you were or you may not weigh as much. You may, you know, I saw my stepdad uh, yesterday and I was just amazed at how he's not sick but he's getting skinny. I was like, wow, man. You know, that's just crazy. But even though our physical bodies are, are wasting away, your inner person is renewed and you're a new creation in Christ. God's great love and free gift, His rich grace and abundant mercy are the cause of this rebirth. The mighty power of God, the power that raised Christ from the dead, is displayed in this regeneration and conversion of sinners. Regeneration is necessary. This is so important to the Christian life, to have a true uh, changed life, to have salvation. Sinful human flesh cannot stand in the presence of God because He's holy in His conversation when Jesus spoke with Nicodemus he talked about this what did Jesus what what did uh, what did Jesus say you must be born again and Nicodemus said what how can a grown man go into his mother's womb and be born again see Nicodemus didn't understand in that instant what Jesus was saying he was speaking of the spiritual rebirth again that salvation that conversion experience that comes when someone is convicted, truly convicted of their sin and repentance follows. And in that supernatural act, one is saved and you begin the process of living your life out being sanctified. That lifelong process, that day-to-day -day process. And boy, don't we know as Christians, right? It's sometimes 
two steps forward, three steps back, but you're still being sanctified. I had a rough morning this morning, but I'll tell you this, I'm still being sanctified. You cannot base your Christian life off of if you're keeping score, you're just going to be discouraged. I'll be the first one to tell you, I mess up so much and the enemy wants to use that to destroy my faith, to destroy my hope in the Lord, to make me curl up and give up and throw in the towel. Praise God that that won't be so. And I know you guys have experienced that because the enemy is working overtime on all of us to get us to try to fall out. He will try to deceive the elect if he can. Praise God that Jesus said not one will he be able to pluck out of his hand. He won't be able to pluck you out of his hand no matter what happens. No matter what happens. Regeneration is a part of what God does for us at the moment of salvation. Along with sealing, as I just talked about, adoption and reconciliation. I'm I'm spending a, a good amount of time on these principles because I think it's so important that we understand these basic principles. They are fundamental to our faith. This is how... And it's not saying that you need to have a three-point sermon when you talk to people, but you have to understand, how am I saved? What, what are the benchmarks that prove that I'm saved? Not that you can explain a supernatural act of salvation to someone, but you should understand that conviction is so important. If someone is preaching that you don't need to feel convicted, that is a false teacher. If someone is preaching and teaching that you do not need to repent over sin and they don't even want to name sin or they don't want to even go even further, which we're not going to talk about today, but actually label actual sins. Again, someone would just say, oh, an affair. Don't call it an affair. It's not an affair. It's adultery. See, adultery is a a little bit more harsher and it stings more and it gets to the heart of the matter. But see, if we don't understand these basic principles then we can, we can think away when we should be being convicted and being changed. We can just think it away and say, oh, it's okay. But I want you to be mature, continue to mature, continue to grow, be strong, have deep roots in Christ, and understand these things that are so vital to our faith. We have to understand that prior to salvation, we were not God's children and that's hard, to, that's hard to accept because people want to say, oh, well, God is, he's the universal God. So he can, he can, he's all of our fathers. I just heard a message from Charles Stanley when I was driving here this morning. And, and I loved his point. He said, yes, overarching theme, God is the father of the universe he created because he is the Godhead. But not everybody can pray even the Lord's Prayer. They cannot, and not everybody can say, My Father, Thou art in heaven, if you want to talk like that. We can't all say that. Because if you have not been convicted, repented, regenerated, He's not your Father. He is not. It's not popular, but before we were children of God, we were actually children of wrath. Ooh, that stings. That's not popular at the party. You're not going to be picked on the team. You'll be the last one picked for talking like that. Nobody wants to hear that. But, you know, know, we have to 
stay rooted in what the Bible says. And this is not doom and gloom, but we need to understand the backdrop of what we were once a part of. And that's why when you understand that and you understand your freedom and your liberation in Christ, that's why some people do jump up and down and go crazy when they, when they praise and worship because they recognize how, how much they deserved that wrath and that judgment. But now there's no condemnation in Christ, but there's liberty and freedom to serve Him. That's such a beautiful thing. It will bring tears, pure tears of joy from your heart to your eyes when you recognize what you've been saved from and how you don't deserve it, but He's so merciful and grace, gracious and graceful to you and to myself. Regeneration begins the process of sanctification wherein we become the people God intended us to be. This is that the new you, who you were meant to be, right? Many of us have walked through this life and we were not doing what God intended us to do. Have you ever been there when you're like, why are all these things messing up? Why do I never catch a break? Why did these things happen to me? Who's ever said that? Why does this happen to me? Why is this happening to me? Many times it's because we are not living in the will of God. And we are, unbeknownst to ourselves, kicking against the goads. And we're wondering why things are so difficult. Naturally, things are going to be difficult anyways because we live in a fallen world. But when you live outside of the scope and the will of God, it's like Jonah. It ain't going to go right. It's going to go wrong for the people around you. They're going to be like, dude, throw this dude overboard because, man, he's messing everything up. As soon as they threw him overboard... The clouds lifted. It was sunny, smooth waters. Wow. I mean, it's, 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 really, it's really that deep. It's amazing what goes on when we live outside of the scope of God's will for our lives. And what happens when we do live inside the framework of what God had intended for us. It's a beautiful thing. The only means of regeneration is by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. No amount of good works or keeping the law can regenerate the heart. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. That's from Romans chapter 3, verse 20. It's clear that we don't gauge our fruitfulness based on these things. Because again, like I said before, you and I will continually be discouraged because we do take two steps forward and three steps back many of the times. And if that's your basis of salvation and your righteous standing with God, then you're just going to be bummed out your entire Christian life. And you're going to be beating yourself up. And the enemy's going to be sitting back with the, with the bowl of popcorn laughing because he's like, you sucker, you're doing exactly what I want. You're breaking yourself down. Don't do that. Be built up in Christ. Only Christ offers a cure for the totally depraved human heart. I don't know what I was watching the other day. I can't remember what show my wife and I were watching, but I think somebody said something. They were taught somebody, some contestant or something on some show was talking about their heart and how their heart was good, but they were making some horrible decisions. And I yelled at the TV. I said, your heart is depraved. Your heart is deceitfully wicked. You are a lost person. You are blinded. You think your heart is good. And again, that's another thing that that's, that's hard 
for people to hear. People don't want to hear that their hearts are bad. My heart's bad? I just saw a commercial yesterday. They said a new go- a new goddess and something about some Zales, uh, you know, whatever, diamonds and things like that because of Valentine's Day. And it's like, I mean, it's just deceiving people left and right. First of all, there is no goddess, so that's already wrong. Then they put some wings behind her and try to make her look all pretty. And it made me think of, oh, Satan. Satan's an angel of light. He disguises himself as handsome, maybe even, I don't know, maybe he sometimes takes a form of a woman and looking pretty and this and that, but it's not right. It's not good. Only Christ can cure the depraved hearts of men and women. We don't need renovation. We don't need reformation. We don't need reorganization. We need a rebirth, and that's a supernatural rebirth that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that rebirth, we will learn to obey God. So I know that that's a, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty long-winded basis for what Paul is going to talk about here. And the, kind of the rest of the message is going to go fairly quicker. But, but we need to understand these things because this is really at the heart of what Paul was talking about. And he was trying to get them to understand what was going on. So as we look at verses 1 and 2, he says, Brothers and fathers... Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that, he was addressing them in the Hebrew language. They became even more quiet. They were blown away. They tripped out. Paul began his great defense before these Jews, kind of in the same way that Stephen, remember the first martyr, Stephen had said, men and brethren and fathers, listen. And then Stephen went off and he just told them how it was. And again, the same thing, because it was the true word of God and the true principles that God has implanted upon the hearts of men and women that truly receive him it was stinging it convicted and they took that conviction instead of repenting because that's the other other way around either you repent from the conviction or you you wish it away or you fight against it and that's that thing of kicking against the goats they didn't want to hear it they wanted it silenced the stinging stung so hard that they said i will kill you to make myself feel better about me because I don't want to deal with that truth. I don't want to deal with that reality that you're sharing with me. And we see it all around the world today. When the conviction comes upon someone who will be prideful still in the face of God and refuse to repent, they turn to what only other means they could do and it's violence to try to eradicate that conscience. But we all know That doesn't work. You could kill a person physically. Your conscience and your guilt will haunt you forever when you do not let your guard down and repent. Paul here uses the word defense. In the Greek, this word apologia, it comes from, it's where we get our word apology. It refers to a formal defense of one's past life or actions. That's what was going on. He, he, he made it clear to them what was going on. And because he spoke to them in their own language, they became even more silent. This crowd, which once wanted to kill him, because when they heard him speak, it hushed them. And it gave the opportunity for now Paul to speak to them and share what the Lord was putting upon his heart to share with them. In the next verse, in verse 3, it says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, but brought up in this city 
educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. Paul spoke as to a Jew unto a Jew. He was careful to lay that common ground so he could build a rapport with his audience, so there could be some form of a bridge there so they could relate so he could be relatable he spoke about his life before christ and then his conversion again this is important to point out because in our witness to others it's always helpful if we could build some common ground where there is no relatability it is that much more of a challenge to get a conversation started Luke told the story of Paul's conversion in Acts 9. We've gone over that already. After that, Paul told this story in some way or form at least four different times in the New Testament, each with its own sort of uh, intention, if you will. In Acts chapter 22, he told the story to persuade the Jews. In Acts chapter 26, he told this same story of his conversion to persuade the Gentiles. In Philippians chapter 3, he tells this story for a theological understanding. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he tells this story, uh, his account of his conversion to give encouragement. And this is very important that what he is sharing, why he is sharing it, how it's getting across to people. He says that he was born in Tarsus in Cilicia. He was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a very prominent, one of the most prominent teachers of that time, a, a prestigious rabbi of the day. And so we all know Paul was well versed in the Jewish laws and he knew uh, he knew the Torah frontwards and backwards and all these things. He was very zealous for the teachings of the law. He taught according to the strictest strictness of his father's law and he was zealous towards God. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning Pharisees and the way that he lived. To the smallest detail, Paul kept the law and understood the spiritual elite of his day. He was a spiritually elite person. He was, this was him basically saying in a nice way, I, I was just like you. I'm really not even holding you accountable for the fact that you tried to kill me because I was the same way. I hunted after those who were of the way, which was Christianity before it got coined Christianity. And so that's what we see going on here. In the next few verses, he goes on and Paul says, I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the high priest and the whole council of the elders can bear me witness from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Here we, we see the personal account of Paul's former lifestyle. He said that I persecuted the way to the death. This was evidence of this zeal that I had just touch, touched on and mentioned in uh, the previous verse. Paul was so energetic, he was so ready to persecute that in some cases he was actually responsible of the death of some of these believers in Christ. Paul was basically saying, you tried to kill me, but you see, before I got converted, I actually killed those. I actually did what you're trying to do to me. 
You see, he's bridging this gap. He's forming a way to where he can communicate clearly to them and show them, you know what? You're not too far off because I was just like you. And isn't that true? You, 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 have you had those encounters with someone and maybe you're, you're further along in your Christian walk and, and, and you're having a, a good rich season of, of, of healthy fruit and growth and you come across someone who's, so to speak, down in the dumps and they're beating themselves up and for some, re- some odd reason, we know it's God providing the opportunity, but God puts you alongside this person and you're led to share with them, hey man, I was just like you. I'm no better than you. This, this is, I used to be like that, but this is what the Lord is doing with me now. Have you had those kind of encounters with people? It's amazing and it's so exciting when those people who are down in the dumps are receptive to what the Lord is sharing through you and they respond. Maybe you don't see them get saved, but you were someone who was used to plant a seed or maybe you were someone who came along and watered a little bit more of what the Lord had already planted in that person's heart. Nonetheless, you are being used like Paul here to encourage your brothers and sisters so that they may see light at the end of the tunnel. You know, many people, they don't see light at the end of the tunnel. It's crazy. There's, I don't know the name of the study, but it recently was taken about the rate of suicide going on right now. And it really didn't have anything to do with the pandemic. It had everything to do with people not believing that there is a true God and that there is purpose and meaning to this life and beyond after you die. Isn't that amazing? Beyond a pandemic, people are really tripping out because they don't think that God exists and they don't think that this life has any value outside of when you die. And that's probably for people from all sorts of backgrounds. People that have made a lot of money and been very successful by the world standards and people that have had a hard time and haven't caught a break at all. But the reality is, the common thread is they need hope. They want to believe in God, but they just don't see Him. And that's the work of obviously the Lord through us, but the church. We're to, we're to be those reflecting the light of Christ. So when these people who are on the brink of utter destruction, ready to take their own lives, they actually could, actually could get a glimmer of hope through your life and my life. And that may cause them to rethink what they're about to do. Wow, that's amazing. I, I was amazed by that study. They said, not the pandemic, but the fact that people le- believe that there is a true God. We know the true God. We got the treasure. We got to disperse it. We got what everybody wants. So crazy. We got what everybody wants. And they don't even realize they want it half the time. Next it says that he went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there. Paul was, at again, energetic about his, his carrying out this, this, this persecution to Christians. The message is clear. He was saying, I understand why you've attacked me. I once was an attacker also. I understand where you are coming from. Paul had been a Christian for more than 20 years, but he could still relate to those who were not Christians. This is very important for us today, right? We don't want to lose sight. The application is this. This is another example that we all have a former life that we had before we got saved. Being honest 
That honesty is so important. Being honest about where we were before we accepted Jesus Christ is an essential part of experiencing true conversion. Without it, we are denying our depravity and the holiness of God, and it makes us unrelatable to people. Nobody wants to sit under someone preaching and teaching that's, so to speak, holier than thou. Oh, they're just so perfect. They got it all together. They don't have any blemishes. They, you know, their family is perfect. They drive the right car. They live in the nice house. They never stutter. They never mess up. The shoestrings never come undone on their shoes. Come on. That's not real. People want to hear and share and be, be accompanied by someone who's honest, someone who has issues. Do you know your pastor has issues? <laughs> I got issues, man. It's just a, it's, you know, when we're honest with ourselves, we can, we can laugh at it because we're like, man, I got some issues. But it's okay because the Lord is working it out. Amen. All right, we see another bulk of, uh, of the passage here, and it says in uh, verse 6, going down through 11, As I was on my way, and I drew near to Damascus at about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light and did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Now we get to see the conviction that Paul experienced. Suddenly, the, this great light shone down. It was so bright that it had, it was brighter than the sun. It was the light of Jesus. It was Jesus himself. It was the light of Christ. You know, when we go to heaven and when, you know, we are in that city, there is going to be no night. There is going to be no sun. All the light we need is Christ is the Godhead. That is the light. And this is the light that he experienced. And as a determined persecutor, this floored him, knocked him off of his horse to the ground. And I don't know where you were, what you were doing when you were truly convicted of the life you were living. But I would venture to say you had your own Damascus Road experience. It was something that stopped you in your tracks. It wasn't something that did not get your attention to truly understand what was going on. You were floored by what the Lord had revealed to you about Himself and your, yourself. And that is the true conviction that we're talking about here. Biblical conviction. This is the conviction Paul needed in order to see that he was in error about how he viewed himself and how he viewed other people. Paul also came to understand that he was persecuting Jesus himself, even though he was persecuting people. He didn't really know 
who he was persecuting until this time. The reality is this. Whenever you and I have denied Christ, either by taking his name in vain, because it could be something as simple as that. Maybe, maybe we used to talk like that. I don't know. But something, maybe you didn't hold a knife to someone's throat or get someone thrown into prison, right? There, there's clearly in other countries, there are Christians who are getting thrown into prison, just like here, what we see a long time ago, centuries ago. It's still going on today. Maybe we haven't experienced that, but maybe we have done something as simple as taking the, the names, Lord, in, uh, the names, the Lord's name, excuse me, in vain. That in of itself is still persecution. We are persecuting Him when we do those things. In persecuting Jesus, Paul was spiritually blind, but then he was also physically blind, and he had to be humbly led by the hand into the city of Damascus. This is another very important aspect of Paul's conversion that we cannot miss, that it should not go unnoticed. Unnoticed, excuse me. He was humbled. This is so very important. Humility plays such a vital part in your Christian walk and mine. Without it, there is none. There is, there, is no, there is no genuine, valid, authentic walk with Christ if there is no humility coming out of our lives. If we do not see our lives living humbly among other people, how can we call ourselves children of God? How was Jesus humble, humble servant, humble servant he was, he is still today. Without humility, what will remain is pride. And that is our biggest hurdle. If we are unwilling to see the error in our ways, even after God has pointed it out to us, we are steeped in rebellion and pride. A great example of this is truly the potter and the clay. The potter has the right to form and mold the clay however he sees fit. The clay doesn't have the right to talk back to the potter and say, I want to be this. You understand when physical clay hardens, but it breaks, it's because of those little air bubbles that form and it messes up the form of the clay and the potter has to destroy it so it can be made again. Spiritually speaking, those, those little air bubbles can be us talking back. I don't like this. I don't want to do that. Or again, kicking against the goads, not letting ourselves be aligned into God's will for our lives. Him being the potter, him being faithful to himself, once we've accepted him, if we still are acting like that, he will break us down to build us back up, right? Over time, we start to get wise and we're like, I don't want to get broken down no more. Let me do it right. Let me do it right the, the first time so I don't have to be broken down again. But the clay doesn't have the right to tell the potter what to do. God is the potter will form and mold and shape us into be whatever vessel he wants for his usage to bring honor and glory to his name. Amen. As we begin to wind down and wrap up this message. And one Ananias, a devoted man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, speaking of, came to Paul, and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, 
The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear his voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone for what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling upon his name. Paul noted that Ananias, he was a great man of God and he was in the family of faith and he came along to aid Paul. When you and I are being transformed from darkness to light, God will always send someone along your side to encourage you, to correct you, to support you. This is a one another ministry. It's not, I go alone. You can look in your own lives. The Lord has always sent someone to your aid. You've never had to do this alone. Even when you felt the loneliness, or the, lo- yeah, the loneliest you ever felt, there was somebody that could be there. The Lord would send someone to encourage you. As the Bible says, iron sharpens iron. This was who Ananias was to Paul. In Paul's speech, we see both he and Ananias simply acted like good Jews. They did not resist God nor deny their heritage. Paul wanted them to know that he still served the God of his fathers. He had not rejected Jerusalem. Instead, he was showing that with Christ you are whole and you can choose to keep your customs, but it's always about Christ and what he does. The God of our fathers has chosen you and shown his will. And see the just one and hear the voice from his mouth. Acts chapter 22 verse 14 is a wonderful show of the duty of everyone before God. To know his will, to see the just one, and to hear the voice from his mouth. Lastly, we see that Ananias asked him, What are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. The application is this. Here we see the importance of true repentance. A genuine changed mind always asks the Lord for forgiveness. In turn, Jesus Christ grants clarity for a person to discern clear truth from error. And this last part, it reminds me of the Ethiopian eunuch when he was with Philip. Remember? He didn't understand. Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? He said, well, I don't, if someone doesn't teach me or show me, how do I know? And when Philip anointed, showed this Ethiopian eunuch what the scriptures meant, he said, put the brakes on. There's a body of water right there. Let's go. Baptize me. I want to give my life to Christ. That is amazing. Though water baptism doesn't save you and I, it is actually commanded by Jesus for us to do. It's more of a public profession and us saying we're aligning with Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus was clear. If we are ashamed of him before men, he will be ashamed of us before his father. Honestly, if people in other parts of the world are being baptized in ponds and lakes or whatever, I'm not talking about a little drip of water, but I'm talking about actually getting submerged then there's no excuse for us not to be baptized. It's a wonderful experience, and it will change your life. Amen? Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we thank you for your saving grace. We thank you for this account of Paul 
speaking of his conversion, speaking of how his life was changed, or from being someone who hunted Christians and tried to destroy those who believed in you to one who was convicted, repented, and regenerated. Salvation came into his heart and he forever looked to serve you. We know that the ultimate picture is of your son, Jesus Christ. Today, Lord, will you help us, Lord, to truly be convicted of the things that we have done wrong, recognize that we're in error with you, that it breaks your heart, that we want to be right with you because we want to have peace with you. May you grant us this true repentance of a changed mind. And Lord, may we rejoice in the salvation of our souls that we've received eternal life with you forever that could never be taken. Lord, may we be, may we be excited to share this truth with other people around us that don't know you. May you put people in our paths that don't know you so that we may share the wondrous glory of your son Jesus Christ with them so they may partake in this great experience as well. For that is why you have left us on this earth in 2021 is to carry out the work of your son Jesus Christ. So Father, we thank you and we praise you. It's in your son Jesus Christ's mighty name that we pray. Amen.